The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Tweet at SFM Radio and at Kathy Mosasana. Six minutes after 11 o'clock, you're listening to The Talking Point. We're leading the conversation right here on SAFM. Of course, today we're coming to you live from the Cape Town ICC. This is where the BHF has been holding its 22nd uh, conference. And they're looking, the Board of Healthcare Funders is the BHF. It's important for me to say that so that people are able to properly contextualize who this organization is. And it's a gathering of medical schemes and different other stakeholders in the medical space and what they've been talking about is having a people-centric approach to the health ecosystem how do you put people at the center of the health ecosystem of course one of the questions that comes to mind automatically is wait I thought people were at the center anyway. So if we're talking about people at the center, where have the people been all along? Well, to, t- to talk to us more about this, uh, we're joined by Dr. Gatlero Mutudi. He's the managing director at the BHF. Dr. Mutudi, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Thanks for having us. Barry Childs is joint CEO at Insight Actuaries and Consultants. Barry, good morning. Hi, thanks for having us. And Dr. Rajesh Patel is Head of Health Systems at the BHF. Dr. Patel, good morning. Good morning, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. So thank you all for making time to be part of this conversation. Dr. Mutudi, just so that we're all on the same page, let's understand who is at this conference, who is part of these conversations around having a people-centric approach towards health? Um, the BHF conference is typically um, attended by um, leaders in the healthcare space, drawn uh, from the funding uh, perspective. And by that I mean we largely have medical aid schemes. Uh, we've got uh, other companies that are uh, supporting um, the space, those what you call third-party providers um, and all other uh, players that are relevant to the funds, but we also have um, the advantage of um, having partnership and stakeholders um, from the policy side, uh, regulatory space, as well as uh, several governments. Um, because of the track record of the, um, the, the conference, we've been able to draw uh, delegates from a number of uh, countries uh, on the continent and even elsewhere, including Europe and the Americas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A people-centered approach, Dr. Patel, it implies in, you know, in its very positioning, this theme, that people are not or have not been at the center? That's possibly true. I think if you look at it from what Dr. Matudi has described, there's many stakeholders involved in the care delivery process, the funding process type of thing. And literally what's been happening, each sort of entity that deals with people's care focus on just their component. And in reality, individuals who are afflicted with, with health needs, whether they're healthy or they're ill, they obviously need themselves as individuals to be cared for. And often that gets lost in the equation. Mm-hmm. If they present with high blood pressure and extremely ill, we try to focus and make them well. But we don't realize that this person 
might need other support, might need family support, etc. And those additional components are often not looked at. So while you might home in, a practitioner might home in and looking after the patient, there might be an affordability issues that are not considered. There might be some, pers this person might be in this condition because he's stressed about some circumstances at home, etc. All of those components we're talking about needs to be looked at. The person needs to be looked at in the context of their environment, etc., etc., and the people they deal with, their work environment. All those, the context needs to be important as well as the individual themselves and their needs. I think one of the crucial questions that, as a, at, that is at the heart of, peop of putting people at, at the center of, of, of health care is the question of access because you can't talk about what you don't have or what you struggle to have access to. And here we have a meeting of mostly um, organizations that receive contributions from members. So they're servicing the people who by and large would have access but they're operating in an ecosystem that doesn't necessarily enable access for everybody. How big a question is the issue of, of universal health care and just generally trying to open up the space of, of, of private health care? Dr. Mtudi? Yeah, I think the, 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 that is the, the crux uh, of the discussion that we should be having um, in terms of the health care reform steps that we've envisaged. Um, Barry here sitting next to me spoke about the fragmented nature of, um, of our healthcare system and that is a problem. So you could very well say that there hasn't really been a centre because you have the funders, you've got the service providers, even within, uh, uh, within those different categories you've got further fragmentation. As a result, each of these individual entities will look after um, maybe to a large extent their own interest or their own perspective of what the patient needs without the collaboration. So the issue of universal health coverage is very important. I mean, it, it, it's uh, uh, founded on a number of principles and access is the main one. Um, and then you can further extend that to say the access must not be meaningless. It must be to essential services. And that's where the person's interest comes in. When I give you something, it must be something you need, something that you can use, and it must also be, then be useful. We talk about quality. So while we're looking at, why we, we, we're looking at who benefits, it must be what type of service and what the quality of service is. And the, the last element that is important is that um, it must not leave you out of pocket. And, and that becomes another discussion mm. because you, 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 you talked about the sort of people that are here today. Mm. We, we are deemed to be in a, uh, uh, an environment which, while it provides access to a certain type of people, is also becoming unaffordable. Yeah. And that has an impact on the access. Uh, Dr. Patel Barry, I'm going to get to you in a moment. That is um, at the heart of what many of our listeners have been saying this morning that they simply are not able to afford the increasing cost of medical care. In fact, they go as far as to say that they believe medical schemes are in it to enrich, enrich themselves and make money. So what you must remember is most people belong to medical schemes and medical schemes are not-for-profit entities. But medical schemes together with some of the other stakeholders are regulated by government. 
And part of the problem that's been mentioned is the fragmentation. Is If we look at the legislations, etc., that are in place, we've got almost 20, 30 somewhat legislations in health. The question is, if you look at it, are they operating in a way that's working like a well-oiled machine? Is the Health Profession Council working with the Council for Medical Schemes, working with the medical schemes, the service providers, and they're all working in a way that's sort of complementary with each other? And the answer is absolutely no. Mm. You find that there are legislations, for example, the Medical Schemes Act, the last time it was amended was 2006. Do we believe that nothing has changed in our healthcare environment over the last 15, 16, 17 years? And it's changed significantly. So what's been happening is there are certain things that are moving forward, other things that haven't changed. There are people involved in positions that they may not be qualified for, etc. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is really look at the entire system and say, are, is everyone pulling their weight in making sure that the individual at the center is getting what they deserve? And unfortunately, at this point in time, I would categorically say no it's not working like a well-oiled machine and that's part of the discussions we need to have is what are the gaps that we need to fill what is it that we need to complete so that the man in the street who doesn't have access to all the technical information and the know-how etc mm -hmm. we can try to empower them or at least put the blocks in place that would assist them get what they need what is the impact of having then what is considered outdated legislation that is governing the space in which schemes are operating in? Well, if you look at medical schemes specifically, mm. there's a thing that they're entitled, that they're supposed to provide called prescribed minimum benefits. The intention of it was correct in the beginning when it was introduced. Unfortunately, the content is not aligned to people's healthcare needs. It's aligned to a concept called insurability. So things that you might not be able to afford, that's what we must ensure. Whereas the reality is we need to put in place benefits that will meet their needs, but also in such a way that when they are ill, they got that first point of care mm -hmm. available to them. Not wait till they might need to be referred to a specialist in hospital and then be ready to provide them the money for that I incident. Moment a person is ill, they must be able to go to any person or anyone who can assist them, evaluate them, make sure their health needs are met. And if they do need to be referred beyond that, then that's something we can consider at a later stage. But we need to guarantee that for point, first point of care. And I think that, that's the gap that's, in, that's big in the environment. So, so, so right now, do you think it's a, it's a case of if somebody is showing symptoms, perhaps, of a particular chronic illness, that the point of treatment or point that medical aids are, are, are putting money into is when you are confirmed to have a particular disease rather than helping taking a more preventative approach to say how can we intervene early on before we're at stage five let's try and help while we're, we're seeing signs that this person could well be leading to stage one of cancer and that's what this discussion is about and we mm. talk about the person-centered rather than the patient-centered patient-centered means we wait for you to get ill you need to get care and then we make sure you get all the care person-centered means you can be healthy but you still have health needs mm. and mm. start looking at that component and the emphasis as you put on is the prevention side of things let's look after people while they're healthy so that less people become ill and infirm kind of thing at a later stage and make sure that people can be healthier for a longer period of time.
with less complications, etc., going into the future. I'll be taking your contributions to this conversation on 086-000-2032. What does a, a, a people-centric health ecosystem look like to you as somebody who is a user of various healthcare systems, whether it's public, whether it's private. I'll take your calls on 086-000-2032. On the WhatsApp line, those voice notes, you can send them on 0614-104-107. Barry, you've done research looking at a 20-year period, modeling how the state of healthcare effectively has changed over the last 20 years. What jumps out in terms of that research? What is it that you believe South Africans should know about this 20-year lifespan that you looked into? Thanks, Cathy. Yeah, so we've looked at, at data from the industry over the last 20 or, or more years, mm -hmm. and, and what we see is a fairly consistent pattern of medical scheme coverage between 8 and 9 million people in South Africa covered on a medical aid, so being able to access private health care. Um, the contributions over that period have unfortunately exceeded inflation, so people have been paying more for health care, or where they haven't been able to afford those increasing contributions have bought less cover, what we call buy-down, so they've bought a less expensive medical aid option. Sometimes that means they have to go to particular providers in a selected mm -hmm. network, that's one of the ways medical aids try to save money, by negotiating better prices. Sometimes they just buy less benefits and then they have to uh, incur those costs out of pocket, which is not ideal. But this is the way that medical aids try to uh, stay solvent, you know, that their contributions can, can be sufficient to pay their claims. What we also see at a macro level um, is that you know, the reason the medical aid industry hasn't grown is really because our economy hasn't grown. So as you say, you know, to belong to a medical aid, you need to be able to afford that. And in order to afford that, you need to have a, a, a good paying job. Um, we see very high medical aid coverage for people earning above a certain income level, um, but we just haven't been able to create jobs. So because what's, what's that income level, Barry? About uh, 400,000 rand a year, we see 80% coverage of, of medical aid membership. So that's only a small portion of the population. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, medical aid coverage is about 15% of the South African population. It depends on, on how much the employer is subsidizing cover, um, as well as you know, what, what they're getting paid in terms of take-home salary. Um, so the reason that hasn't grown, in fact it shrunk a little bit down from 17% a few years ago, um, is mainly because we haven't been able to grow more, more, more jobs, mm -hmm. we haven't been able to grow the economy. Schemes have been trying to uh, reinvent themselves, find new ways of offering lower cost cover, but here is where the regulatory paradigm has fallen very far behind. Uh, there was a very clear plan going back into the 90s and early 2000s to improve access and, and lower cost improve affordability um, but um, since the policy direction changed in 2007 to be focused on NHI there's been unfortunately very little reform meaningful reform in the private sector and so medical schemes have been stuck as Rajesh mentioned with the same regulatory framework to operate within currently there's a big discussion going on around uh, packages specifically designed at uh, at uh, lower income earners mm -hmm. so below that kind of level to say well if you can't afford a medical scheme okay that's you know uh, unfortunate but what what benefit package can we provide into that market 
um, which we think is you know four to eight million people potentially um, that would that are currently paying for care, um, private care out of pocket, going to the doctor, going to the pharmacy, etc., but aren't able to use an insurance mechanism, a risk pool mechanism to access care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a, a, an area of significant industry debate over the last few years. When you talk about these above inflation increases that we have seen in the cost of, of medical aid, is or medical cover rather, is that justified? Especially because, you know, on the, on, the other end, on the other end, you're talking about medical schemes that want to introduce low-cost offering options mm. and are not quite able to do that yet. And yet, they're also increasing costs above inflation, well aware of the country that we live in, mm. well aware of the, the, the challenges that this country faces. Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to demystify there. First, it's very important to reiterate that medical schemes are not for-profit entities. There's no profit that can be distributed to shareholders from a medical scheme. Uh, When surpluses arise, in other words, contributions that are collected exceed claims, that goes towards the reserves in the scheme. Those reserves aren't distributed like in a for-profit company where there's shareholders and, and dividends. They stay within the scheme. Schemes have to collect enough contributions to pay claims and other expenses like paying for their trustees and administration expenses and those sort of things. But the medical schemes themselves are not for profit entities. They're not like uh, insurance companies or banks or, or those kind of things. It's a, that's a super important point. So they need enough reserves to cushion them from bad experience. Or if they have high claims in a particular year, that like any insurance kind of entity, they need reserves for that. But they operate in a not-for-profit environment. So mm-hmm. when they're increasing costs above inflation, they're doing so because their input costs, the claims costs, are increasing more than inflation. Not because they feel like there's more profit to be extracted out of the system. So then you have to think about, well, why, why is that? The, the population in the medical scheme environment is aging, the burden of disease is increasing, non-communicable diseases are increasing, etc. We don't see that the, the provider tariffs, the prices that providers are charging is the main driver of claims costs. It's mm-hmm. that people are using more of the services. So all else equal, more people are going to the pharmacy, more people are going to hospital, more people are going to the doctor. And that is what's been driving medical scheme cost inflation above CPI over the last 20 years. And and interestingly enough, one of the complaints that people often have is that medical aides are not paying out their claims where they felt that they had every right to be receiving payment. Dr. Patel? I think this is part of the problem of where of our history and the benefit designs that's come through. It's what I call the finance-centric benefit design. And inevitably, it comes with limits, etc. And you try to offer a whole range of benefits from the essential to the nice-to-haves as well. And sometimes, let's take the plan I'm on. I've got some nice-to-have benefits that really I can't buy much benefit at all with it. And I'm wondering, well, couldn't we dispense with that and rather take that money and contribute it towards some of the essential things? So it's the structure of the products that have been developed over many, many years. And I think this is where we're talking about where the benefit design need to be changed completely, mm. where you rather package a lot of essential services that people can get access from 1st of January to the 31st of December without any limitations in it. And upon over and above that, then you can start selling add-on components kind of thing that depends on the size of the wallet or what people can afford. And I think this is where 
the, the, the kind of stewardship, leadership is missing in the environment. For example, government has been do, dealing with essential medicine since 1996. The Medical Scheme Act came out in 2000. In 2003, they implemented chronic disease list. Why implement chronic disease list for 26 conditions? Why didn't you just implement essential medicine list for both acute, chronic, for all diseases that, that could be treated? Mm. And this is the kind of thing that we're recommending at this point in time. Let's improve access to first point of care. Let's provide essential medicine list for all the conditions for which those medicines can be treated. You know, unlike the current benefit where nine autoimmune diseases can be treated, four or five get nothing, but yet those four or five need the same medicines as for those nine. So it doesn't now, make sense. So why are we discriminating mm. people on the basis of disease? And let's rather say these medicines will treat autoimmune disease. Whichever autoimmune disease you've got, this medicine is available for you. And that's the kind of change we need to make. And that's what we're talking about, person-centric and patient-centric benefit design. That sort of meet their needs, and it's essential. If an ECG is essential, regardless of what your illness is, or even if you need the ECG for wellness benefit, mm. it's available to you because ECG is an essential care, an I essential mean, service. One of the things I, I discovered um, just throughout my pregnancy is that even though there will be tests that, are, that you're referred to by the doctor to get done, medical aid won't pay for some of them because they don't see them as being part of the essential list. So if it's bloods, they'll pay for two blood tests. They won't pay for five, even though the doctor says, well, you need to go, go and get these three extra because there might be something else that I'm detecting. But medical aid doesn't seem to think that that's important. I think this is related to the benefit design and particularly like your chronic disease list mm. that are prescribed and benefits. So if you happen to have high blood pressure, we will pay for the <coughs> test related to your high blood pressure. But if you happen to have another disease at the same time that's being tested and it's not part of this list, then unless you have savings or you have a benefit, extra benefit available to pay for it, it's not likely to get paid. And that's where we're talking about meeting per people's needs in the healthcare experience that they go through. All right. I want to take this quick call from Mpondo in Flagstaff in the Eastern Cape. Mpondo, good morning to you. Hello, good Hi, Mpondo. Yes, just two questions. Mm. Where is the scheme for the poor? Because the poor uh, don't access this quality healthcare uh, life. Two, uh, what about the primary health care? What has happened to the primary health care yeah. uh, 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 system and home base? Because uh, 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 where can I go and get a, a training for, 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 for a primary health care if I want to, 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 to be having disease? But it's a system that now is, is, is within the health care system is for the poor to, to, to pay for those that are, 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 are rich, you, 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 you know. The poor is the one that is suffering the most and is the one that is paying for those that, 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 that can have an access to these uh, 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 health care schemes that are expensive or that are profiteering in, in, in South Africa. Thank you. All right. All right, Mpondo, I'll give our guests an opportunity to answer your question in a moment. It, of course, is time for us to uh, take the latest 11.30 news headlines. Mpondo wants to know, where is the medical scheme for the poor? 
And number two, what is happening to primary health care? All right, we're going to have to take the latest news. Luyanda, good morning. The headlines at 11.30, I am Dino Mutong. The death toll in a brutal attack on 15 people inside a house in the Umsundu's location at Peter Marisburg has risen to 10. In other news, the case of escaping from lawful custody against Tabo Bester has been postponed in the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court to the 20th of June for further investigations. And the Electoral Commission is due to issue a comprehensive statement on the state of party funding today. A full update follows at the top of the hour. We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're live to you from uh, the Cape Town International Convention Center where the BHF, the Board of Healthcare Funders, is holding its annual conference. They're looking at having a person-centric, person-centered approach to healthcare, particularly ensuring that the entire ecosystem is working together to put people first. Very important questions from Mpondo. Uh, Dr. Patel, let me give you the first gyps. Where is the, the scheme? Where is the scheme for the poor? This is a fantastic question the listener has actually asked, and that's one of the reasons why we're discussing, and I'm going to be running away from you in a moment to discuss that very question. So this is the problem that I talked about where our regulatory framework is not structured to look after people's health. It's there to look after the money side of things. And I think this is the discussions that we're having and the debate and the frustration we're having with the regulatory framework is that we're recommending that we need to make sure there's lots of primary care, both for those who are on medical aid, but also those that can't necessarily afford. And Barry commented on that component. Those that cannot afford, why should they have anything less than, say, someone who's got medical scheme? We all have similar health needs. So why can't we have that common benefit that's across the board for everyone? for the well-to-do and those that are not well-to-do, and you put them on one plan. And then you can also have cross-subsidies between them coming through, etc. The risk can be shared between the healthy and the not healthy, etc. Mm -hmm. These are structural reforms we need in the system. Yes, Barry talked about it, and you raised the issue about a plan for those that cannot afford to be on medical mm -hmm. schemes, etc. Mm -hmm. We are fighting that for a long time. There is regulations in place for five years and unfortunately those people who are in power who are supposed to make it happen unfortunately have not finalized what they should be finalizing a long time ago and I think all of us are actually frustrated about it that something that can be done within a period of a few months is taken us five years so we would like that accelerated the prescribed minimum benefits that was supposed to be reviewed every two years has not been reviewed every two years it's almost 20 years and it's since they were last reviewed since so well there was a review where they brought in the 26 chronic conditions mm. since then nothing but we have a changing burden of disease in this country what was killing people 20 years ago yeah. has changed you have your lifestyle diseases now that have come in i mean our next caller wants to talk about cancer um these are all the things that people are having to deal with now. What's the impact of that, Dr. Mtudi? It's quite dire. And I just want to go back to Mbondo's question. It's an important question, but it should not be a necessary question. Mm -hmm. Because as a healthcare user, you should not be worried about affordability or who's going to fund your healthcare. 
you should just be worried about where you are going to get it and it should be at the nearest point of care. And that's what belies our discussion around establishment of universal health coverage, that healthcare needs must be addressed based on necessity and the need from the, the healthcare user. So while there has been stepped, steps to try and increase access from the private health, health sector, mm-hmm. um, Barry talked about the LIMS project from around 2003, thereabouts. We're also talking about the low-cost benefit option. Those are really stop-gap mechanisms. Mm. Our main purpose should be, as a country, to move towards universal health coverage, where there is this convergence that we're talking about. So Mpondo should not be worried about who's going to fund my health care. It should just be the nearest place where I could get health care. And that continuum of care that is uh, implied by universal health coverage, that is health promotion, prevention, um, we talked about primary health care, and that's primary health care. And then treatment when you are ill, uh, rehabilitation if the situation is dire, and then palliative care for, for cancer. And those are the discussions that we should be having from a system reorganization point of view, not haggling over who's going to fund this, etc. Because that, 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 uh, regardless of how painful that question is, mm-hmm. it should not be necessary to, to, to raise it from a, a user perspective. We should be discussing the other things around what you're asking now about the, the burden of disease. And it's true. Um, it's an indictment against us, those who are in positions of leadership, that we haven't kept track of what needs to change. Mm-hmm. We had to struggle during COVID. COVID was really around healthcare promotion and preventative care. If our primary healthcare settings were set up in a way that um, uh, is adequate, we shouldn't have been uh, struggling as much as we did. We had to, in the first few months, had to change uh, legislation in the medical scheme environment to allow for COVID and and vaccines to be available Mm. in a particular way. The government had to set up uh, special laws, etc., to cater. Those those are things that should be automatic. In the business world, we talk about disaster recovery plans, etc. So, while we don't want disasters, but you plan for it. And that should have been a switch that is available. Say, there is this outbreak and this is what's supposed to happen and one, two, three, four steps. So, the law must actually precede uh, those, those elements because you should be forward thinking. Barry, very briefly, because I've got uh, uh, some callers and also voice note questions, but are we talking about a system here that, uh, listening to what Dr. Motibi and Patala are saying, that is exclusionary by design? So that's a tough question, Cathy. Um, I don't think it's by design, but I think that, uh, you know, like other areas of expenditure in an economy, resources are limited. So it's really a question of how we collect and spend those resources. South Africa is an incredibly unequal society, you know, with unemployment uh, in the mid-40s, very skewed income distributions. We have, you know, two economies. We have the, the have and the have not still, which is, you know, still a function of our, our past. Um, and, uh, you know, people that have the means, you know, send their children to private school, they have private security, you know, they exp- spend different money on their housing and their food, etc., and they also spend their money differently on health care. 
Um, and as a result, there is this parallel system of private health care, um, which is not uncommon in the world, but the way it, uh, it reflects the underlying economy in South Africa. Could we spend the money differently? Uh, sure, uh, but um, it's a big pool of money. That's a big pool of people, rather. To, if we had to just re redistribute the money that we have now, it wouldn't really enhance the public sector budget that much on a per capita basis. So there's difficult choices to be made in terms of, um, in terms of uh, the exp you know, what's, what's very expensive care to provide. Um, and there are always going to be trade-offs between um, what care should be paid for and what shouldn't be paid for. Those are some right. of the challenges Rajesh was talking about earlier. All right. Let me go to June. June, good morning. You're in Cape Town. Thank you so much, Kathy. Okay, thanks, sir. Hello, June. Can you hear me? I, I'm struggling to, to hear you a little bit, but you can, you can go ahead. I'm going to try and see if I can, if I can make okay. out what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm moving a bit. Um, yes, that sounds better. Glucose and glutamine, they are okay. sugars found in the human body. Now, Dr. Seyfried, his, his name is S-E-Y-F-R-I-E-D, has put these two, glucose and glutamine, in a petri dish, on ca and um, he has um, um, found that in the human cell, they just go berserk like a bomb to cause cancer. Now, um, the, if, that's on YouTube. Now, on, if you Google it, you'll find the, in U, the USA, the University of Georgia has discovered salt kills cancer. They take nanoparticles and they inject it into the cancer um, and it kills the cancer cells. Now, um, this is a very important information because they found that cancer is not inherited. It's glucose and glutamine is that stuff that you find in health shops that build muscles. It's got a black and a red tin. Do not take glutamine or don't take glucose, which is sugar. You know, they say there's a book on sugar. I've never read it. And it says sugar is like cocaine. It is so bad for your body. It causes cancer, sugar diabetes, whatever. So there, there are treatments for cancer, but not in this country. I mean, it's, it seems, and, and by the way, the nanoparticles just dissolve. They, they are soft particles that dissolve by the human body. June, you know, there, there's a part of me that thinks if it was that easy, would we be having the kind of problems around treatment that we do where, where cancer is concerned, you know? Um, but, but I'm going to take it to, to the doctor, leave it in the doctor's hands. Um, because one of the big things, of course, about cancer, Dr. Mutudi, is that we're now seeing medical schemes provide a limit, some of them, for how much they're willing to pay where cancer is concerned and cancer treatment. I thought that was going to be what June has brought up, but what do you know about um, salt, nano salt? That is Nanoparticles. Yes, 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 uh, yes, yes, yes. No, I don't know much about the research that June is talking about. Uh, I think we, we must just be careful about the sources of information. There is a lot we know about cancer. There's still a lot we don't know. A lot of research is ongoing, and uh, um, we've had in this conference as well about certain new developments. So while I think it's a sensitive topic, I mm -hmm. think people must be circumspect about the information they get and make sure that the literature they get is uh, uh, from reputable uh, uh, sources. 
And if there's any doubt, um, I imagine that June has um, a regular practitioner that they they can go to and then get more information. Uh, I think it's also dangerous to be diagnosed over the phone about somebody who doesn't know your, your, your treatment. But coming to um, the, the question around uh, uh, limits, I think Barry was talking about rationing just now. I don't know if there's any healthcare system in the world that does not ration. Medical aid's ration, government's ration. You hear about national health system in the UK. They talk about the long queues, or you talk to Brazil. Every system has got some sort of rationing because there is nowhere in the world where we can afford to pay for all the healthcare needs of the citizen. And even our constitution talks about the progressive realization of universal health coverage to the extent that we can afford it. So it's important that we manage these expectations. But what is critical is that there should be an essential package of benefits which is largely promotional and preventative health care that should serve as a basis. And then you can look at other things, they often lump them into catastrophic health care needs etc. Now in the medical schemes environment um, some of the restrictions are structural uh, based on the legislation that is Mm -hmm. there. Dr. Patel before he left talked a a bit about the prescribed minimum benefits. While there are these restrictions based on affordability by the scheme, there's also structural uh, limitations based on what the law says. And Barry can talk better about what it costs, for example, to fund a prescribed minimum benefit. I think it's around 900 rand. About 1,000 rand. About 1,000 rand. And what that means, that is a threshold for you to enter into the market. Now, if you're going to look at a scheme that has got maybe 20,000 members or so, collects uh, uh, premiums and doesn't have a very healthy uh, reserve uh, or, or, or solvency base, it's going to be difficult for them to extend the benefit limits beyond what is prescribed by the law. So there will be uh, many instances where somebody is ill, they say, one, is this cancer treatable? Um, If it's not treatable, it immediately then falls outside the scope of what is termed to be uh, PMD. Um, and, and those are the unfortunate situations that we, we often find ourselves mm-hmm. under. Yeah. Um, Barry, w- we're running out of time for this interview, so you, you've got a minute to wrap us up. But I think that a lot more than also needs to be done in educating um, the, the public or ourselves about what actually goes into a medical scheme and what it is that one is paying for and buying. And this conversation around prescribed minimum benefits, it's come up so much, and yet when you join a medical scheme, you don't get a call that says, ma'am, you've joined us, we just want to make sure that you understand what you qualify for and what you don't qualify for. Yes, absolutely. So healthcare is an inherently complex environment. Mm -hmm. So many different things can go wrong, so many different treatments, different doctors, hospitals, pathologists, etc. Um, but it, is, it should be the job of the industry to make it simple. Just like your phone is a complicated device, but the user interface is very simple and intuitive and it, you don't need to read the instruction manual. Healthcare should be the same. 
It's difficult and it's challenging, and there's a lot more work to do there. The person that's supposed to be doing that is your medical scheme broker. Most people should have access to a medical scheme broker, either through their employer or if they've made the choice to belong to a medical scheme. And that broker, that intermediary, is there to help you navigate those challenges. What am I covered for? What am I not? They're supposed to be handling queries for you, explaining to but you. But they don't. Well, I mean, they, if they don't do their job, they, they can be reported. I mean, they're earning the commission fee there, so, um, which is built into your medical scheme contribution. Um, so th- there are supposed to be these, these kind of support services. Um, but I, I'm not saying that it's, uh, that it's well done. Um, there's definitely room for improvement and it's one of the areas we're we're trying to emphasize that not necessarily simplify the benefit design but make the communication much more intuitive so that there's not that mismatch between what patients expect and what they actually get out at the end because that causes a lot of frustration look if if if, if brokers were doing their jobs half of the people who are waiting for claims that are unpaid would perhaps not be waiting because they would know whether or not the yes, medical they should be aid more was going to be paying mm-hmm. that claim in the first instance. We're completely out of time for okay. this conversation. That's where we have to leave it for this morning. But certainly, I think a lot more different aspects that we need to look into to help us fully understand how medical schemes function. And when you talk about this fragmentation, so what are the different components that make up this fragmentation? Because you go to a hospital, you deal with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, labs, etc. And because they're all in one place, we think they all work together. Mm. But apparently, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case. Unfortunately, that's, where we, we, that's what we have time for for this morning. That's why we leave it on the talking point from the Cape Town International Convention Center. Up next is the book reading.